You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, Park Church. My name is Luke. I am the student minister here. Uh, Sorry in advance. Uh, So we are continuing our series now in Christ. The series is called Christ in the Psalms. It's a series on Psalms, Christ in the Psalms. We're continuing our series. And today we are looking at Psalm 121. Psalm 121. And this is a psalm. Psalm 121 is a psalm of great encouragement to the believer. Super encouraging, because the idea is this, right? This psalm tells us that when difficult circumstances arise, when difficulties, when the trials of life come our way, this passage reminds us that God is faithful to us in the midst of the storm. But here's the thing, right? For those of us who are still seeking, who might be skeptical of Christianity, they're asking a lot of questions, the words in the psalm might appear a little bit strange, a little bit foreign, a little bit surprising, because it sounds kind of too good to be true. It sounds too good to be true. Can the God of the universe really be that close to me? Can he really be a friend to me like that? Can he really be my protector? Can he really be my friend and ally to this extent that this psalm is saying? This psalm says yes. Yes, he can. The God of the universe can be your friend and ally in this way. And this psalm does this. It explains it. It expounds it to us by showing us three things about God. Three things. The first thing that, he sh- that it shows us is God's presence. The second thing is God's protection. And the third is God's pardon. God's presence, God's protection, and God's pardon. But I think the thesis, the main point that I hope that we see, that we learn, that we glean from the scriptures this morning is that our help and our salvation comes from the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray, God, that we would see your face over the next few minutes as we study your scriptures, as we study your word, as we study Psalm 121. God, we pray that you would inhabit this time, that your Holy Spirit would be here in our midst, that you would open up our eyes to see your face. Lord, it's so often, it's so easy that, for, for me at least, to get distracted. I look to the right or to the left. I get, I get, I don't know, distracted by so many other things on smaller hills. I look to smaller hills, but Lord, help us to see. Help me to see in this moment over these next few minutes that you are our keeper. You are our true help. You are the one that sustains us, that restores us. You are our only hope. 
God, I hope that you, you would show that to us over the next few minutes. And Lord, may the words that come out of my mouth not be mine, but yours instead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, next slide. First point, God's presence. God's presence. Okay, so check this out. For the next five minutes, you're going to have to bear with me because we're going to go back to ninth grade English class. We're going to go back to ninth grade English class. And you might be like, oh, no, I hated ninth grade English. I got a B. That's the Asian F. And I didn't like it. It was so bad. I couldn't stand it. But here's the deal. In ninth grade English, the reason why we're going back to ninth grade English class is because because that is the moment where we first learned how to read poetry. Ninth grade English is when we first learned how to, at least that's when I first learned how to read poetry. I wasn't paying attention, I'm sure, in eighth and seventh grade. But ninth grade poetry, ninth grade English is when we first learned how to read poetry. And if you'll recall from ninth grade English, when we read poetry, we must read poetry differently than the way that we read a narrative. We must read poetry differently than the way we read narrative. Most of the scriptures, most of the Bible is written in narrative form. And what is narrative form? Basically, it's just a story, right? Story time that records people and events, history, that sort of thing. That's typically the majority of the scriptures is written in narrative. But the Psalms are different. The Psalms are different because the Psalms, they're not narratives. They're obviously, they're songs. They are poems, right? And so because of this, as we learned in ninth grade English, you can't just read a poem at face value and think you understand what's going on. You can't do that. If we want to understand the Psalms, we have to look for things like literary devices. We have to look for poetic structure. We have to look at its poetic structure. And that's what we're going to do now for the next couple of minutes. We're going to look at Psalm 121 and we're going to look at poetic structure. In the ancient Near East... Most songs were written in a form called a chiasm, a chiasm, which is very, very different than the songs that we listen to today. Songs today have a very simple poetic structure, and I'm going to show it to you on the screen. Go ahead, go ahead and hit the next slide. The, uh, the modern-day poetic structure looks like this. Verse 1, chorus. Verse 2, chorus. Verse 3, or the bridge, chorus, okay? And so the chorus, the idea of the chorus is that's the main point, that's the thesis statement of the song, and the verses point to the chorus, and you repeat the chorus after every verse, okay? So, to illustrate this, we're going to examine arguably the most popular, the greatest contemporary song of all time, Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. All right, best song of all time, so says Melanie Fenwick anyway. Okay, so notice how this song follows our contemporary poetic structure, right? So verse one, I stay out too late, got nothing on my brain, ba 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 You guys know the song, right? Okay, I don't have to sing it. But then it goes right to the chorus, because the play is going to play, 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 right? That is the thesis statement, that's the chorus, right? Verse two, verse two, I never miss a beat, I'm lightning on my feet, and then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then, you know, a little pre-course goes into the course again. Because the play is going to play, 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 play. Right? Okay. But then, verse 3, ooh, we're going to shake it up a little bit. Here's the bridge. You know, she kind of wraps it a little bit. Because my ex-man brought, brought his new girlfriend. You know, that sort of thing. Right? You guys remember that? You guys know it? But then, closes out again with the thesis statement of the song. Because the play is going to play, 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 play. Right? Do you see that? 
Do you see this, okay? Almost every modern song follows this formula. Listen to the radio. Well, I don't know if I would recommend it. But if you listen to the radio, or if you, like almost every single song does this pattern, does this formula, okay? Even Christian songs follow this formula a lot. After every verse, you repeat the chorus, which is the main point or the thesis statement of the song. So that's modern poetry, right? That's modern poetry at its best. But songwriters, okay, but songwriters in biblical times followed a very different formula, and again, it's called the chiasm, the chiasm. In a chiasm, the main point or the thesis statement is in the very middle. It's in the center, it's the peak of the song, and the verses surround it. So if you can look at this next slide, the structure looks like this. Verse one, verse two, verse three, Chorus right in the middle, at the peak, at the middle part, the peak of the song, and then verse 3 prime, verse 2 prime, verse 1 prime. So it's a symmetrical type of formation. This is how ancient poetry in the ancient Near East uh, looked. This is how poetry was written back then. So when we read songs in the Bible, when we read poetry in the scriptures, usually the main point or the thesis statement is in the middle of the song. It's in the middle of the text. Okay? All the, po- all the verses point directly to it. So, now that we understand the poetic structure of the scriptures, let's look again at Psalm 121. Go ahead and hit the next. There it is. All right, so check this out. So verses 1 and 8, are kind, they kind of have a similar theme, a similar point, right? Which is, no matter where we are in our journey, God is our help. Verses 2 and 7 say a very similar thing. God is sovereign over all. Verses 3 and 4, and then 5b and 6, very similar theme. This idea of God watches over us 24-7, day and night, he is watching over us. But the center, the thesis statement of this psalm is the first half of verse 5, which is, the Lord is our keeper. God is our keeper. This is is the psalmist's thesis statement. And what does it mean? The Hebrew word for keeper is shamar, shamar, and that can be translated as protector, guard, or watchman. The psalmist is revealing to us the character of God through this song, through this psalm. God is not just a gentle shepherd, though he is, but he's not just that. God is not just a loving father, although he is that. He's not just a faithful husband, though he is. He is also, however, this passage is telling us that the Lord is also a warrior. He is a soldier. He is a guard that protects us and fights for us and watches over us. And this sounds amazing, right? This sounds fantastic, but we run into a problem. That brings us to our second point, God's protection. God's protection. Let's read verse 7 one more time. Verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. This passage claims that God is our keeper. He is our protector from all evil, from all evil. But when we look at the world around us, or even when we look at our own lives, how can this be true? How can this be true? When we look around this room, 
It might look like everyone here is like super put together, super solid, but don't be fooled. <laughs> don't be fooled because all of us here, all of us in this room are broken in one way or another. We all have, have brokenness inside of us. All of us have suffered and gone through stuff in life. And all of us in this room have asked the question to God. We've asked God, why? Why? God, why would you allow this to happen? How could you allow this suffering to take place? How could you allow it to happen out there? How could you let it happen to me? And it seems like either God isn't all-powerful since he can't stop the evil or the suffering, or it seems like he's not all-loving since he won't stop the evil and the suffering. Doesn't it seem like that sometimes? So why does God allow it? Why does God allow evil? Why does he allow suffering in our lives in this world? Here's how the Bible explains it. In the book of Genesis, in the very, very beginning, God creates the universe. He creates humans, he creates us, and he tells us, hey, uh, see that fruit right there? Don't eat it. But, stupid us, we decide, ah, I'm going to eat it anyway. So we disobey God. Humanity says to God, we would rather go our own way rather than to follow you. That is what we said to the Lord. So in that moment, that moment we decided to rebel, the universe changed. The universe completely changed. Our disobedience cut us off from the good, life-giving power and presence of God. And so with God gone, sin entered the world. And with sin, it brought evil, it brought suffering, it brought, it brought pain, it brought sickness, it brought death. But wait, that seems a little bit extreme, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem a little extreme? Like, all they did was eat a stupid fruit, right? That's all they did. They just ate a little fruit. Why would God leave us just because like, of, of a tiny little sin? Just a small little disobedience. Not a big deal, right? Super small sin. Just ate a fruit when told not to. Why would God abandon us over something so small? Isn't that a little extreme? Here is one way that I try to explain this to my students. Go ahead, go ahead and hit the next slide. So this is a picture of people who are or shortly will be in need of medical attention. They're going to be in need of medical attention or currently in need of medical attention. Why? Why are they in need of medical attention? Because, hit the next slide, they passed out because they entered the presence of their idol. They entered the presence of Michael Jackson. Ah! They entered the presence of Bruce Springsteen. Ah! Justin Bieber. Oh, no, I'm out. I'm out. Oh, no. Uh, 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 who else? Who else is up there? Uh, Harry Styles. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm out. Passing out. I need medical attention because I just saw One Direction. Ah, Chris Hemsworth, you're so dreamy. They passed out because they ran into their idol. They were in the presence of their idol. Psychologists call this celebrity worship syndrome. Celebrity worship syndrome. And studies on it have confirmed what the Bible has been saying for centuries, which is, idolatry is not healthy. <laughs> idolatry is not healthy. Thanks, psychologists. <laughs> but here's my question. Here's the question, okay? If this, it's not up there anymore, but if this is what happens, if hospitalization is what happens when we are confronted with human glory, what do you think happens when we're confronted with ultimate glory. In Isaiah chapter 6, 
When Isaiah went into the presence of God, he melted. He melted. He called curses on himself, and he wished that he was dead because his eyes had seen the King, the Lord Almighty, and he wanted to die. He wanted to die when he saw the Lord. And the truth is, we would do the same thing. We would do exactly the same thing. I think a lot of us picture God as this like mean, vindictive, old man sitting in the clouds, like get off my lawn type of, type of guy in the clouds. That's how we picture God. We think that God enjoys zapping us and watching us suffer. Uh, like, oh, you did something wrong. Ha ha, I get to zap you. And that, that makes me like that, that gives me kicks because I'm like, that's how we picture God. But that is not him at all. That is not God whatsoever. Because the Bible repeatedly shows us, it repeatedly shows us that God is a loving and gracious God that wants to be with us, that desires to be with us. But the thing is, because of our sin, he has to stay distant. He has to stay distant. Not because he wants to, but because if he doesn't, we'll melt. We will melt. God's greatness, God's glory, his holiness won't just make us pass out like those dudes on the screen. No, his glory would destroy us. It would kill us. And so, as crazy as this sounds, God's distance is actually a means of protection. It is a means of protection. But it creates a huge problem. A huge problem because God's presence is glorious, but it kills us. God's distance, however, is merciful, but that also kills us. His presence kills us, and his distance kills us. We're dead either way. We're doomed. What do we do? What do we do? That brings us to our last point, God's pardon. God's pardon. Let's read the beginning of Psalm 121 one more time. A song of ascent. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's easy to overlook this, but note the title of the psalm. Note the title. It is a song of ascents. A song of ascents. And actually, that title is part of the original text. It's part of the original text. And if you'll recall, the songs of ascent are the playlist for people who are on pilgrimage. People who are on pilgrimage headed up or ascending towards Jerusalem. Whenever people were en route to Jerusalem, whenever people were heading to Jerusalem, the Bible says that they are always going up to Jerusalem. They are ascending to Jerusalem. Even if you were like traveling south to Jerusalem, or even if like you started in a position of higher elevation, so let's say you're in Denver, a mile high, right? And you're going to Jerusalem, you would still go up to Jerusalem. You would still go up. Why is that? Why is that? It is because in Jerusalem stood the one true high place of worship, the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem. And the temple, in the Old Testament, the temple was the only bridge between God and us, God and humanity. It was the only bridge. Nothing else could provide the help that we really need. In verse 1, the psalmist is essentially asking us, hey, Where does your help come from? Or really, he's saying, what are you placing your hope in? Where are you placing your hope? 
to the Jewish pilgrim, he might have been asking, is your hope in Baal? Is your hope in Baal? Is it in Asherah? Is that where your hope is? He might be asking us a similar question. Hey, is your hope in your bank account? Is your hope in your popularity? Is your hope in your beauty or your intelligence or your athleticism or a form of entertainment or a relationship? Is that where you place fundamentally your hope? Is that what what you put your faith and your trust in? A relationship? Your beauty, which passes away in a moment? The Bible's saying that all those things eventually, ultimately, will let us down. If we try to place our hope in the things of this earth, we will be let down. When I was in college, uh, I did exactly what the psalmist told us not to do, and I placed all of my hope in a relationship. All of my hope was in a relationship. I dated this girl for about two years uh, when I was in college, and I was like absolutely sure I was going to marry her, 100% sure. I put all of my joy, all of my hope, all of my faith in her, and that was, by the way, that was pretty unhealthy. You shouldn't do that, but I, that's what I did. I put all of my joy in her, and so... When my relationship with her ended, it wasn't just a normal breakup for me. The problem was that I had made her my God. I had made her my idol. Everything, all my heart, all my life was invested in her. All of my hope was in her. And so when she eventually broke up with me, it was as if my God had left me. My God, my hope had abandoned me. And so I was utterly devastated, utterly devastated when she broke up with me. Following the breakup, I prayed a lot. I prayed a lot, and I asked God repeatedly over and over again the same question that we had asked earlier in this message, which is, God, why? Why? Why would you let this happen? How could you let this happen? It was really my fault. But I was like, how could you let this happen, Lord? This is your fault. How could you let these horrible things happen? How could you let me suffer like this? I'm totally hurt. I'm totally broken. I'm devastated. When, Lord, will you fix this brokenness? The Lord answered me, but he did it by asking me to lift my eyes to a different hill. In John chapter 2, when Jesus went up to the temple, right? Again, remember, remember the temple? The temple was the place of worship. It was supposed to be the place where God connects with humanity. It was that place of connection, the one place in the entire earth where we're supposed to be able to connect with God. But when Jesus goes to the temple in John chapter 2, he discovers that that temple system was totally, utterly broken. It was broken. The temple had become a place that prevented people from drawing to God instead of connecting us to him. It prevented it. So Jesus cleared out the corruption. He cleared out the temple, but then he made a declaration, a powerful declaration. And basically he said, I am the new temple. Jesus said that he is the new temple. No longer would we have to go up to a physical temple up in Jerusalem to find our hope. No longer would we have to do that. Now we lift our eyes to another hill called Calvary, where Jesus fixed everything that was broken. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he said to us that he'd fixed the problem of suffering by suffering in our stead. He offered to give us his perfection, his righteousness, and he offered to take our sin, our death, 
upon himself. And if anyone ABCs, if anyone A admits their sin, admits their brokenness, admits the fact that they're in need of a Savior, A admits, B believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the only one that can save us from our sins. He's the only one that can give us our true hope. And C, if we choose to follow after him, if we ABC, admits, believe, and choose, Jesus will gladly gladly make this cosmic exchange with us. He will give us his righteousness. He will impute it upon us, and we will give him our pain and suffering, and he will happily do that. And when this happens, the glory of God doesn't hurt us anymore. The glory of God, in fact, is a beautiful thing for us when that happens. And in fact, no matter what happens in this life, no matter, like, let's take worst case scenario, right? Let's say we die. Oh no, that might happen to all of us, right? What if we die? No matter what happens, Jesus promises that he will be right there with us. He'll be right there with us through every single storm of life, keeping us and protecting us the entire way. So let me conclude by going back to my story, uh, my college breakup. Um, Again, I was super broken and devastated for a pretty long time. And honestly, and as as I mentioned earlier, it was my sin, it was my idolatry that caused the pain and caused the suffering that I was experiencing. And even, but here's the deal, right? Even after I repented, after I repented of my sin and my idolatry, I still had to walk in that sadness and that sorrow and that pain for an extended period of time. But it was different. It was different following repentance because I felt the presence of God with me. It was sort of like, like there, was, there was purpose to my pain. There was purpose to my pain. God never promises us the removal of suffering. He never promises to deliver us from the suffering, but he does promise that he'll walk with us through it. And he also promises to redeem it. He, will pro- he promises us that if we put our hope in him, he will redeem every difficult thing, every pain, every tear that we shed will not be forgotten. It will be redeemed if we let him. Ultimately, for my story at least, God saved me from a pretty unhealthy relationship. The relationship was unhealthy by my own doing. And God saved me from it. And I realized that had I ended up with, you know, had I gotten my way, had I ended up with her, I never would have gone on the adventure that I've been on for the last several years. I would never have ended up in Denver, would never have met you, would never have met my students, who I love very dearly. Don't tell them I said that. (laughs) So here's the deal, right? So yes, there will be moments in our lives when it feels like hope is lost. But for those who are in Christ, there's a promise that help is on the way because the Lord is our keeper. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I confess that I am someone that turns perpetually to lesser hills. Lord, I look to the right and to the left I am distracted by the wind and the waves, and I take my eyes off of you, Jesus, 
and I look to these things of this world that I think, that, that are not bad, right? I, I, I look to so many things of this world that distract me, that entertain me, that are fun, that, that, that give me joy and happiness. But then suddenly I, I make those things my ultimate thing. I make those things my God. I make those things the source of my hope and my joy. But God, I think all of us, we all know in our brains that things like beauty fade. Things like our, our checkbooks, our wallets you know, money, finances, those go away. Lord, those things are all temporary. Relationships, even people, they let us down, even if they don't want to. Even the best relationships, sooner or later, we get let down by those. And God, forgive me, forgive us for being a people that perhaps look to those things for hope and deliverance instead of you, our keeper, our protector, the one that wants to be with us, that wants to help us and wants to, to, to take care of us but so often we, we keep you at, at arm's length. We, we push you away. So God, forgive me. Forgive us for doing that. But God, may we be a people that remember in this moment that you are a faithful God that desires to be with us, that wants to be with us. You are our true solution. You are our true hope. You're the one that delivers us and saves us. Help us to believe that with our whole hearts. And Lord, may we be a people that change our hearts and change our lives in order to, to reflect that. Lord, as we think about the cross, as we think about what you did for us, how you spared no expense, how you gave up everything for us just for the shot, just for the chance of being with us, Lord, we pray that that love would infiltrate our hearts and that in so doing, we would turn to you, not look to lesser hills, but instead look to Calvary and look at what you did. So God, change our hearts Make us more like you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.